to The Political Animals, a podcast about politics, culture and ideas from a conservative perspective. I'm your pontificator-in-chief, Jonathan Cole, academic by day, intellectual by night, just like Batman, only cooler. And this week, we're tackling critical race theory. So, critical race theory. Why would anyone in their right mind want to tackle a topic as thorny, as thistly, that's a weird word, as that? Well, I think there are two reasons which, in a way, go to what this podcast is all about. One is that I think the best antidote to challenges to free speech is simply to speak freely. No need to make a song or dance about it, just exercise your right to speak. And secondly, and relatedly, I think the, well, I think essential to a healthy society is a society in which all ideas are contestable. And of course, that doesn't just go for ideas with which I disagree. It goes for ideas which I hold. And so I welcome uh, critiques of conservatism. There's no shortage. And similarly, I look to contest other ideas. And so today, I'm going to contest critical race theory. First, before I dive into the topic, a word about what motivated me to attack this problem. Perhaps a poor choice of words there, but we'll we'll roll with it. Well, I attended a webinar uh, via Zoom, as is the way in this COVID era, a couple of weeks ago called Critical Race Theory and Islamophobia. And it was given by a Muslim Australian academic who had done her PhD in critical race theory and is now doing postdoc research at an Australian university. And at about the 10 minute mark, I started to feel quite unnerved. And by the end of the lecture, I was thoroughly disturbed, uh, borderline terrified. This was really my first exposure, proper exposure to critical race theory. And it really weighed on me for some days afterwards as I tried to reflect on why I had such a reaction to it. Now, of course, according to critical race theorists, there's no mystery why I reacted to it as a white man. It simply challenged my privileged power position in the elite, and I'm afraid of losing it. But that kind of thing couldn't have been further further from my thought what really prompted me was to to what really weighed on me was trying to understand both the nature of the theory and why I felt that it failed so abysmally and so what I plan to do in this episode of the political animals podcast is really two things one I want to give a short and hopefully cogent exposition of critical race theory what is it What does it argue? And then I will mount a critique. I'll share with you some of my major criticisms now that I've had a few weeks to really reflect and think deeply about it. Now, I don't need to go into detail about the the specific webinar lecture because this is not actually supposed to be a specific response to that particular academic. Uh, I just mention her, albeit not by name, to explain both the motivation and also to explain 
what will undoubtedly be a couple of references here and there to the lecture. The primary source I'm going to use for the exposition is actually a reading that she sent through ahead of the lecture, a really good primer on critical race theory called, strangely enough, Critical Race Theory and Introduction. And it's by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefancic. They're a husband-wife team. Published in 2001 by New York University Press. And Delgado is one of the pioneering voices in critical race theory. He's now in his 80s. And this, the, the virtue of using this primer for my purposes is I want this exposition actually to be phenomenological, which is a fancy-ass way of saying that I want to give you an account of critical race theory that's not critical, that is just purely descriptive. And so I'm using a text written by critical race theorists, and I'm going to try and exposit the theory using, as close as I can, the language, vocabulary, and ideas um, by those who actually believe in the theory. And then I'll move to the critical phase, because the whole point of a phenomenological reading of a theory you're going to critique, and this is good intellectual practice actually, is that an exponent of the, exponent of the theory ought to be able to recognize the theory as a true and genuine account of the theory. This helps us to avoid straw mans, straw mans, straw men and the like. So just to foreshadow where I'm going to go, I want to share with you in embryonic form, my headline conclusion. This is where I plan to end up, although I will elaborate when I get to the end point. And that is that critical race theory does seek to address a real problem, namely racism. And yes, for the purposes of this, I assume that racism is real and that it does exist in one form or another. However, I'm going to argue that it does so in the way that is intellectually untenable. That is, the actual theory itself just doesn't hold up intellectually. And in addition to that, I'm going to suggest that the theory, if applied to real social conditions, has some very undesirable and disturbing implications. And that, for me, is what makes the theory bad, not just unsound. So, what is critical race theory? Uh, I'll, in a moment, I'm going to tell you something about the origins, but I just, it's a bit hard to talk about the origins of something that is still opaque and undefined. So I'm just going to give you a very brief, succinct description of what critical race theory is. Then I'll move to the origins, and then I'll start to give in more detailed form the key tenets of the theory as depicted in the Delgado Stefancic te uh, text, Critical Race Theory and Introduction. So critical, critical race theory um, consists of a collection of activists and scholars who are interested in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. Now, what is good about this succinct definition is it offers up the three key concepts, the three key ingredients, if you like, that make up the meal of critical race theory, and that is race, racism, and power. Now, just note that in that succinct definition, that was a paraphrase from, from the actual book I'm, I'm working from, note that this is not just a scholarly discourse or an area of research or a discipline or even a sub-discipline. 
It's also, and very explicitly, there's nothing hidden about this, it's also an area of activism. And this is a classic case of a modern phenomenon that we have where we get a mix, an admixture, not sure what the difference there between mixture and admixture is, except admixture makes me sound a bit more sophisticated, so we'll roll with that. Uh, it combines both scholarly research and activism, which is to say an intent and goal of changing society in a very specific way. So this goes beyond just trying to understand society. Listen to this quote from the um, Delgado Stefancic primer. Unlike some academic disciplines, critical race theory contains an activist dimension. It not only tries to understand our situation, but to change it. And this is actually one of the things, once we get to my critique, that makes this theory quite pernicious in my view, because it is agenda driven. It has a certain vision, a certain conception of society that it wants to implement. But of course, by masquerading also as a discipline, uh, it allows a whole bunch of critical race theorists to get employed as academics at universities, and it gives them a platform to write, to speak, and to teach, but of course, all with this agenda of changing society. And actually, one of the most disturbing terms that was dropped multiple times in the webinar I attended with the um, Australian critical race theorist was she mentioned a number of times that the desired goal here is actually some form of revolution. She was quite open about using revolutionary language, and we'll get to a bit more of that in a second. So that's just the nuts and bolts of the theory, but let me say something about the origins, because this is quite interesting. I was surprised to learn, and you might be too, that critical race theory actually emerged in the mid-1970s. I mean, I only started hearing about this in the last couple of years, to be honest, but like a lot of the most radical theories that have currency today, cultural Marxism is another one. Uh, these actually have origins back in the radical heyday of the 60s and 70s, the two decades where it seems a lot of bad ideas emerge and are just starting to have their critical purchase today. Now, it, it emerged in the mid-70s through a kind of loose network, an evolving network, we could say, of lawyers, activists, and legal scholars in the US. Seems like all the best and worst ideas of the late 20th century emerged out of the US. Just note that on passant. And these lawyers, activists, and legal scholars, they came to the realization or the conclusion that the progress of the civil rights era in the 1960s had stalled or in some cases had actually gone into reversal. Now, they came to the view that the cause of stagnate, stagnating civil rights progress in the 1970s, after some genuine progress in the 60s, uh, was due to the fact that subtler forms of racism hadn't been addressed because the civil rights movement obviously addressed the really overt, blatant discrimination, particularly in the, the South, the kind of uh, unambiguous legal discrimination that made uh, black Americans have an inferior status and not have the full rights enjoyed by white citizens. Once 
those main forms of, if you like, formal legal structural racism had been redressed through legal means. This set of scholars started to think, well, actually, racism still exists in all different forms. And really, we're failing to address these subtler forms of racism. And that forced a kind of theoretical rethink, provided really the fertile ground for what emerged as critical race theory. So it's, in a way, a theory emerging out of, if you like, the kind of second decade of the civil rights movement. But I don't want to suggest that this was the official theory of the civil rights movement. If you like, it's a, it's a kind of splinter. Perhaps that's not the right term. But it's, it's one uh, tributary emerging out, one river emerging out of this common uh, pool. That was a bit of a kafefe analogy there, mangled like the great Donald Trump, the wordsmith of our time. In any event, uh, this nascent intellectual movement, it really coalesced in the 1980s, and it became formalized when the very first workshop held ever anywhere, which was called Critical Race Theory, um, occurred at the St. Benedict Center in Madison, Wisconsin in 1989. So it had been around since the mid-1970s with different scholars in different law schools across America, University of Chicago, Harvard University, all of the elite institutions, of course, which is where uh, some of the most absurd ideas emerge in our intellectual life. And since then, of course, the literature has proliferated. Loads of people have done PhDs. Loads of scholars now identify as critical race theorists. And, of course, spread beyond the land of America to places like Australia, Latin America, Europe, and really you can find it in every part of the world wherever there are elite higher education institutions. Now it's just worth noting, because I'm going to tie off the origin here, we don't need to dwell too much on it, that the intellectual roots of critical race theory are threefold. It emerges, it adopts some of the ideas of critical legal studies, some of the ideas of radical feminism, and some of the ideas of some of the bogeymen of the late 20th century, continental philosophers like Antonio Gramsci and Jacques Derrida, two names that seem to be associated with every uh, rubbish progressive theory, radical theory that's come out of that, that time. So that's a little bit of its genealogy. It, it is influenced by those radical currents that start emerging in the 60s and in the 70s. I just want to note, highlight one in particular, and this is an idea that critical race theory got from radical feminism, because I think this is the most important idea it adopted, and it creates an interesting link, actually, between these two radical thought systems, critical race theory and radical feminism. And that is the idea that there is a relationship between power and the construction of social roles. Of course, it's not hard to... Imagine what is at play here when it comes to radical feminism. The constructed social roles are the gendered roles of the housewife and the woman being the mother and the man being the provider. And this idea was adopted and adapted, as we'll see momentarily, when it comes to the construction of race roles in society. So that's the origins of critical race theory. Let's get back to that succinct definition that brought together race, racism, and power 
And let's have a look at a couple. I'm not going to go through every single tenet of the theory. And tenet is the language used in critical race theory and introduction, the Delgado and Stefancic test, text. So I'll give you a couple of what I think are the key tenets. And these are the ones I want to critique and engage. So the first idea or tenet is that racism is ordinary, not aberrational. What does this mean? It argues that racism is embedded in our thoughts and social structures, often in subtle and unconscious ways. In other words, racism is actually a, if not the, defining mark of our social organization, institutional and legal arrangements, and interpersonal relations and activities. Now that, interestingly, is kind of reminiscent of the function of class in Marxism. And this is not actually, I don't raise that to draw a genealogical or intellectual connection between Marxism and critical race theory. I just note the way both theories seem to elevate one single concept as the kind of cipher or key to unlocking or explaining every facet of our reality. So in Marxism, class antagonisms, who controls the means of production, kind of explains the whole of history, the whole of social organization. Well, in a kind of similar analogous way, in critical race theory, um, it's the function of race which explains the kind of institutions we have, the kind of legal system we have, the kind of power relations and hierarchies that we have. These are all shaped, influenced, or respond to in some way uh, race. Now, of course, if race is ordinary, it's a bit of a hideous term, but that's the term used in the Delgado Stefancic uh, text. Uh, if racism is ordinary, that is, it's embedded into our social existence. It's not just an aberration that the odd human just happens to be racist when most humans aren't. I suppose that's what it's trying to get at. If racism is the, the ordinary, the norm, if you like, then it means it's far more difficult to cure and address. And it's not as simple as was thought in the civil rights era, that it's simply a matter of equality or being colorblind because they only address the most blatant forms of discrimination. And it leaves us, or they are incapable, the sort of normal policy tools, if you like, the normal legal uh, remedies for discrimination, they leave these more unconscious, subtle prejudices, acts of discrimination, the way we look at each other, the subtle interpersonal uh, things that we do, the decisions we make when it comes to hiring. These are often um, guided by racism, but in a way that is not obvious for someone, uh, for argument's sake, observing the interaction. So again, this helps to explain the premise, if you like, or the basis for the revolutionary agenda, which may seem counterintuitive, particularly to a lot of white people who aren't as obsessed by race as critical race theorists, perhaps aren't even thinking about race in these terms. The idea is the critical race theorist sees racist structures embedded in every individual and in every structure and every 
relation in society and seeks to address this. And by virtue, actually, of the fact that it is so subtle, that's why a revolutionary mechanism uh, is required because we tried the obvious thing of just changing the laws and, and outlawing, if you like, overt discrimination. In a way, I would, I would argue this is a radical splinter from the civil rights movement. Remember Martin Luther King Jr. In, in a way, what he was advocating was simply to give a place to black people, give a voice to black people, provide opportunity for black Americans in the existing structure. This more radical splinter came along a decade or two later and has only gained in strength. And it said, actually, that project was misguided. Yes, there were some advances, but the structures themselves, the structures that, that King was trying to open up to African-Americans, they are intrinsically racist. And so it's the structures themselves that need to be radically reformed, if not thrown out, and remade and only then will that same underlying problem of racism the martin luther animated and, and inspired martin luther jr king and that first generation of courageous civil rights activists uh, only then will that uh, racism that systematic problem the embedded problem of racism actually be properly addressed so that was the uh, the first tenet, which uh, got a little off track. I got a bit of wind, and now I've, the wind has dropped down. I've almost got no idea where I am, but I actually have some show notes here I'm working to. So that was the, the first tenet, that racism is ordinary, not aberrational. The second, and this is, this is where it gets very interesting, actually, because this is very counterintuitive. Uh, racism or race, I should say, rather, is a social construct. This is the social construction thesis. And it posits that race is not an objective, inherent, or fixed concept or category. And as such, race, wait for it, does not correspond to any biological or genetic reality whatsoever. Races are simply categories invented by society and as such, they are categories that can be manipulated, again, in the interests of power elites. And in the case of Western societies like Australia and America, that's obviously white power elites. And it also means, and again, this is germane to understanding the radical platform of critical race theory, its activist dimension, to use Delgado and Stefancic's terminology. Um, because it's a social construct, it can be unmade, reversed, altered, changed, dispensed with, replaced. And so again, the idea that race is a social construct, again, is part of the basis for the revolutionary uh, progressive agenda of critical race theory, because they see the, in effect, they're unhappy with the existing racial constructs. And they want to remake them in what they would say is a more just and equitable way. Third tenet is something that is sometimes called interest convergence or material determinism. 
What these effectively mean is that the system of white ascendancy, this is the structural racist system in which we live, because it advances the interests of both white elites materially and working class people psychically, whatever that means, I'll attempt to unpack later, because it is in the structural interests, material or psychic, of white people, large segments of society therefore have little incentive to eradicate it. Effectively, all white people have a vested interest in the existing social racial, in the existing uh, racial constructs and the institutional, legal and social system that those constructs have created. So just to delve one layer deeper than this, the idea here is that racism runs much deeper than merely having an unfavorable impression of members of other groups. It is the very means and mechanism by which society allocates privilege and status. Recall in that original succinct definition of critical race theory, I really highlighted, perhaps over-highlighted, <laughs> those three core concepts, race, racism, and power. Here we see them all coming together. So one of the key things that critical race theory does, and really, arguably, this is its key innovation, is that it, identif it identifies the social construct of race, the real problem of racism, the way that these constructs are used to manipulate, manipulate and disadvantage certain segments of society. It's all in the name of power all in the name of material interests in, again, the case of Australia and America of the white majority. That is, it's, it's more than just a bit of bias, a bit of prejudice in individuals. It's more than misunderstanding. It's more than what's on the human heart. The entire structure is weighted against minorities. That is, it's designed to lock them out and keep white people in their privileged historical position. So this, this final aspect that I just want to touch on briefly before I get to the critique is that critical race scholars think liberalism is an inadequate framework for addressing racial problems. They effectively think it's a failure. And that's because liberalism, in their view, really focuses on colorblindness and the idea that there are neutral principles of constitutional law. That is, the liberal modus operandi or the liberal antidote, if you like, to racism is to try and foster a society that is colorblind. And this is really seen in a lot of the legal principles that is full equality before the law. And yet the critical race theorists think this is a failure. And one of the really fascinating but also disturbing elements of critical race theory is it really can't stand this idea of colorblindness. And this is about as counterintuitive as this theory can get because who could be against colorblindness? That is the prevailing Mecca, the prevailing uh, Nirvana, promised land, if you like, of anti-racism, certainly in the popular imagination, is that we are all, or at least we all were, until critical race theory came along, trying to strive towards a society where certainly the color of your skin 
made no difference to your treatment, your opportunity, the kind of jobs you could have. Uh, that is to simply make it as um, some people have noted, you know, the most uninteresting fact about us, that is the color of our skin. Now, because color blindness really, it seems to me, is public enemy number one for critical race theorists, theorists um, they advocate for what they call something far more aggressive. <laughs> and this, I think, is one of the central problems with the theory. They actually want an aggressive color consciousness. They want to make race front and center. They want the, uh, the academic, the Australian academic at her webinar, I'm paraphrasing here, but she effectively said what critical race theorists want is they want us to be thinking, talking race all the time in every aspect of our social life. Because remember, I drew that parallel with Marxism because race is what explains every facet of our social existence. It then follows that to address any social problem, you need to address the hidden race assumptions or the underlying uh, racist constructs or attitudes that are breeding disadvantage and inequality and all this kind of stuff. And so really what we all need to do is become race conscious, that is conscious of the, if you, if you like, the whiteness of our society. And although the Delgado Stefansic text, it, it, as far as I can tell, it doesn't even mention the concept of whiteness. That was a big part of the webinar I attended. And whiteness, again, has nothing to do with race or biology. If you like, it's an ideology that really expresses this underlying racist structural system that critical race theory seeks to expose and demolish and overturn. Now, it goes without saying that if liberalism is actually an obstacle to addressing racial problems, then conservatism is obviously far worse. And so again, just to put a little bit more meat on the bones of the revolutionary uh, activist agenda here, Really critical race theorists seem to position themselves in some kind of opposition to liberalism and, of course, anything to the right of liberalism, which is every form of conservatism you can imagine. So it also very explicitly positions itself on the left of that conventional left-right spectrum that some people no longer believe in, but we still all talk about politics in those terms. And so it is just worth noting, really critical race theory theorists, I think, place themselves quite consciously at the radical end of the left on the progressive side, and they see their political opponents as liberals and everyone to the right of liberals. That's the key point that I want to make. So before I get to the critique, just let me all wrap this up because I've spent uh, a lot of time unpacking on the phenomenological part of this, uh, this treatment of critical race theory. This is, this is a good summary. Critical race theory posits that racial categories are socially constructed in the interests of power elites. Race has nothing to do with biology and it has everything to do with power. In fact, it's really only about power, which means that in our Western societies, racial categories are constructed, used and manipulated to preserve and maintain the material advantage of white elites. 
That effectively is what critical race theory amounts when you package its key concepts and its tenets. So, let me embark on a critique. And I'm just going to run through what I think are the key problems with this theory. Now, the first one, this is the one that I really wrestled with and took me quite a while to, to come to grips with after I was sort of uh, weighed down, burdened by that webinar I attended, disturbed, as I said, terrified, I think I said. And that is that I think critical race theory, and this is really its, its core problem, critical race theory does not take cultural difference seriously enough, in my view. It fails to appreciate that racial differences often correlate with cultural differences and given cultural differences are real and consequential, they are not constructed, if we accept the proposition that race is a construct, it makes it very difficult for humans to dissociate the significance of cultural differences from the triviality of racial differences. What do I mean by this? Well, if we accept, and I do accept actually, that race, certainly at the genetic level, is trivial that is when you look at what makes up the human being the color of the skin is a rather trivial genetic difference you know from a purely scientific point of view but the problem is that those things that we notice with our human eyes like skin color this is something young children notice almost instantly a, a sort of curious difference that they notice humans come in different shapes and Sizes, different genders, and they also come in different colors. A two-year-old kid becomes aware of that, in my experience. Uh, because we notice these differences, so you can't pretend you don't notice if you're a white person that, you know, that person over there is black, and I'm, I have no doubt that the black person also notices, wow, there's a lot of white people here, or, you know, that person's black, that person's whatever color. Because we notice that, and because they often come, not always, not necessarily so, but because they often come with cultural difference, we really feel <laughs> the impact of the difference. And I think it's natural, though not correct, to associate the racial difference with the cultural difference. So let me give you an example. Now, most Chinese people on the planet speak one of the Chinese languages or a Chinese dialect. They obviously have distinctive Asian uh, features. Everyone's aware of that. They come from a very different political system. They have a different education system. They've got a totally different philosophical tradition. They are not part of the Western tradition. So we have a, a uh, effectively one, what I'm saying is really the bleeding obvious. That there's a totally different um, culture that is attached to that racial difference and so when you as an australian or an american or french german whatever interact with a chinese person who's raised in china you immediately have often a communication barrier because very few white people are fluent in mandarin or shanghaiese or cantonese or whatever and most chinese people don't speak english uh, often when they do, it might not be completely fluent. But then, of course, there are different ways of perceiving the world. There are different ways of interacting, you know, the way you greet and all this. This is all sort of common sense stuff. And so I think in the minds of a lot of humans, 
these cultural differences are very um, obvious and very meaningful. And so whilst the fact that Chinese people might on average be shorter than um, Anglo-Saxon Australians, that they generally have dark colored hair, it's generally straight and you know other um, genetic backgrounds might have curly hair or whatever. Yes, that is all entirely trivial from a genetic point of view in terms of defining the human being. It really makes no difference and it ought to make no difference. But the cultural differences <laughs> are not only real, they're everything. And that's, I think, the major source of the prejudice. And so the reason I think this is pertinent to a critique of critical race theory is it seems to me it completely ignores cultural differences and just focuses on this amorphous opaque notion of structural racism and sure okay let's just say the the notion of asian is a social construct and i'm very open to that because um you know, a Korean doesn't necessarily look like an Indonesian. The color of the skin tends to differ. The features differ. And yes, white people tend to group them all together, just as Asians tend to group French, Italian, Greek, American, white people all together. So yeah, perhaps that's a, a racial construct there. But the cultural differences are not a construct. Now, let me read to you a very famous quote from Augustine's City of God, book 19 which is relevant here, I think. The quote is this, For when men cannot communicate their thoughts to each other, simply because of difference of language, all the similarity of their common human nature is of no avail to unite them in friendship. So true is this, that a man would be more cheerful with his dog for company than with a foreigner. Now, what's interesting about that is that the idea that not having a common language let alone all a, a kind of common culture, is a barrier to intercourse, friendship, understanding, is an ancient idea. This was obvious back in the day. This scenario that Augustine paints was of two travelers on a Roman road who meet each other but don't speak the same language or don't speak a common language. And he observed that, well, you might actually feel more comfortable with a dog than with the stranger. So to get back to critical race theory, I think one of its core problems is by not taking seriously enough cultural differences and the fact that they, they tend to correlate with racial differences, that is differences in people's appearance on average. And again, I'm not saying the cultural differences have anything to do with the racial features. You know, Chinese culture has got nothing to do with the fact that most Chinese, and even then not all Chinese, because there are actually different races in China, has nothing to do with the fact they generally have straight black hair. That is a, a trivial difference. And to understand this, you only need to see the fact that uh, we know in Australia there are Chinese Australians who are raised here who are just as Australian as, as the, the next Anglo-Saxons. So clearly, if the racial features were determinative they would determine culture but clearly you can grow up with any kind of culture irrespective of your racial background if i were adopted adopted by a chinese family then i would be chinese culturally you know i might look a bit weird and different but i wouldn't come out as an australian because my australianness has nothing to do with the color of my 
skin or my blue eyes or curly hair or my height or stature or anything. And so I think by overlooking the significance of culture and the way that culture generally does, not always, but we're talking in, on, in the sort of the uh, general mean here, does correlate with racial differences, means that often miscommunication, misunderstanding does look like it has a racial profile, but it may actually come down more to cultural differences than to some kind of latent racism. So for example, let's say there's an quantum, say there's a, uh, an academic in uh, Azerbaijan who's a quantum physicist. And he's like a, a world, let's say he's, he's the top quantum physicist in Azerbaijan, impeccable credentials, uh, writes lots of great um, papers in Azeri. He's the leading figure and he applies for a job in an Australian university. And he comes to the interview and this is for a teaching job. So he's going to be teaching undergraduates, introduction to quantum physics. And let's say it comes out at the interview that he has only kind of broken English. He's not actually fluent and there's a bit of a communication problem. And let's say there's an Australian candidate who is a bit more junior, doesn't have as much experience, perhaps doesn't quite have the accolades, you know, hasn't won the national award or didn't win the university medal or whatever. Perhaps this Azerbaijani uh, academic got his PhD in Harvard. And maybe, maybe the Australian got it of got it at some uh, less notable institution. Now, if the Australian gets the job, see, the critical race theorist is inclined to say, well, that, that's obvious because the whole system is geared, remember, towards the power interests, the racial hierarchy that favours the white person. So, of course, even subliminally, subliminally or unconsciously, that panel may be inclined to appoint the white person because they want to preserve that power position, that status of the white person. But perhaps another explanation is that the Azeri guy just didn't have good enough English. So these cultural differences are real. I just think this theory cannot go anywhere when it prioritizes race and the, the construct of race over other significant things like culture. And we can think of other ones uh, too. Now, related to this is that, and really this is, I guess, working up to an example of what I would call the over-essentialization of race, or to put it differently, a kind of racial reductionism. That is critical race theory, as I have suggested multiple times already, it really posits that race defines and explains every aspect of our social reality, every law, institution, cultural habit, and difference. Now, the problem with this theory, much like any one that essentializes one concept, in this case race, or which reduces complex reality down to one concept or one phenomenon, again in this case race, is that there is no intellectually credi credible way to substantiate this view. I mean, how on earth would the critical race theorists even go about researching empirically the idea that every white person has this kind of hidden psychic unconscious drive 
to maintain and preserve the material economic benefits of privileged white status and that therefore they're really a racist even if there's nothing overtly racist in their behavior and that all this reinforces this structural racism i mean part of me is inclined to describe this theory as nonsense but i wouldn't i'm not even sure how you would substantiate that it's nonsense because what i'm suggesting is you literally cannot even begin to research and test this hypothesis it's really just a piece of creative writing it really is posited look critical race theory like virtually every progressive theory it seems to me is absolutely obsessed with power and that is a real cause for concern because theories that make power central to their explanation for society tend to be all about trying to get power or to reverse the power imbalance. Now, of course, the critical race theory would probably say, well, yeah, of course we're, we're obsessed with power because power is in the hands of a white elite and it's unfair, it's unjust, it's structurally racist and we're trying to level the playing field. Well, that's fine. I'm, 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 I'm more for having more uh, CEOs, politicians, leaders, senior public servants, bishops, cardinals, football coaches, whatever, pick your um, industry. I'm all for having a more diverse set of voices, uh, some gender balance and some kind of racial diversity that broadly mirrors the, um, the proportions that races are in the in society but of course i don't think when you're obsessed with power in an ideological sense that really just a, a genuine balance is what you're aiming for usually what happens is we end up with overreach and that is we end up with a new power elite we end up effectively with george orwell's animal farm i mean the like all revolutions there's a real injustice that needs to be addressed animals in the farm rise up but of course the story ends with the pigs in the farmhouse sitting around the table lording it over the rest of the animals and we're back to the status quo ante it's just that the humans have been supplanted by the pigs in that story so i'm a bit concerned that the critical race theorists whether they acknowledge this or not whether they realize this or not and I suspect some of them may actually want this, is that what they desire to see is minority rule. That is, they want to see black voices, women, LGBTIQ, Latino in the case of America, or whatever it is, migrants, have much more power than perhaps would be justified by their proportionate part of the population. And I think they really, I mean, if, if white privilege and power is as evil as they say, then it doesn't it kind of follow that we need to disempower white people. And if we disempower white people, then who's going to be in power? Presumably minorities. Now, it seems to me any revolutionary force that wants to seek power, going back to my Orwell example a moment ago, you know, we, I would like to see a guarantee, but I don't think they can give a guarantee that when they seize power, 
they're going to exercise it responsibly and justly. And we should never forget Lord Acton's famous dictum in this regard, that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then the second bit of that dictum, which often gets left off, but is crucially important, is that great men are almost always bad men. Now, one of the defining marks of liberalism is that it, it assumes a kind of pessimistic view of human nature. That is that you have to build some accountability into the system because if left completely unfettered, the human being as a political animal has a tendency to enslave others, to lord it over power, to exercise power, to do things for its own selfish advantage. This is why we have things like the separation of power, equality before the, the law. Now, there should be a warning bell here that because critical race theory places itself in opposition to liberalism, it thinks liberalism, remember, is an obstacle to the true racial nirvana of redressing the structural disadvantage against minorities built into this white power elite system. Because it stands in opposition to this, we ought to be rather concerned about what accountability, because <laughs> let's, let's assume it throws out liberalism, well then what replaces it? What kind of polity governs this racial nirvana, this nirvana in which we're all, all obsessed with race and all we do is talk about race. Maybe, I mean, the, the logical term here, and this is provocative, would be racism. That is, and I don't mean racism in, in treating people prejudicially based on the color of their skin, but a kind of ism like liberalism. That is, it's a society defined by race relations that's constantly critiquing racial constructs. That is a kind of system, seems to me, that begs for the term racism in a particular um, way. And this really brings me to my final critique. And congratulations anyone that has made it this far. I hope the wait is worth it. But I think there's a dangerous implication to problematizing whiteness, the white race. And this is that it does promote, it seems to me, a form of racism. Now, if we throw out colorblindness... If we dispense with colorblindness as the desideratum of addressing racism, and I do think actually a world that's colorblind seems to me would be a huge advance on a world with racism rather than this world of racism in the secondary sense, one where everything we do is kind of race conscious. I think there's a real danger because let's say we convince all white people to really spend a lot of time thinking about their, their own race. Well, there are people who have long been doing that. They were called Nazis. They're called white supremacists. They're called neo-Nazis. I just think, do we really... I mean, this is what I would say to a critical race theorist. I would say, do we really want to make every white person in Western nations uber race conscious where everything they their entire understanding of society is through the prism of race and their own racial construct that just seems like a a recipe for driving a lot of people to discover white supremacism and this is the kind of the white supremacists these days 
whilst there are the kind of crass traditional racists that just don't like people based on the color of their skin and all kinds of crazy conspiracies there's a more sophisticated breed that i think is more alarming that you know it's the kind of richard spencer types who just say well i'm just a white man and just like black people talk about their identity i'm just going to talk about my own white identity it seems to me in a way this is where critical race theory pushes us and again wouldn't it be far better if we could work towards a colorblind society rather than a race conscious race conscious one because the facts don't change the majority of australians and americans are white and so if we make race the central concept the central thing we teach all children and think about then isn't that just going to make whiteness isn't it more likely to embed even further the notion of whiteness anyway maybe i'm i'm just uh missing the plot here but that seems to me a very dangerous proposition so there are some of the reasons that i think this theory is intellectually bankrupt and when it comes to making white people obsessed with their whiteness and their white identity as a majority i think there's a there's really a dark undertone here and something quite troubling because i think uh, this this theory, if it really took off, could exacerbate our racial tensions and problems, not actually ameliorate them, which is the very thing it's designed to do. So just in conclusion, I just want to make a couple of clarifications. My criticism of critical race theory is not meant to suggest, as I have stated once or twice, that racism in its traditional guise is not a real and pressing problem. Now, by traditional, I mean prejudging and discriminating against people based purely on the accidents of biology, things such as skin color, which I think is a trivial genetic difference and should have really zero bearing on the dignity and place people have in society. So that kind of racism is real, existent, wrong, and unjust, and it does have to be actively fought in my opinion now to be fair to critical race theory it does recognize this problem although i think it misdiagnoses the nature of racism it is we need to be cautious here if we're going to critique critical race theory and stand against it that it is addressing a real problem the antidote the way of combating critical race theory is not pretending that racism doesn't exist or that we've sorted it all out or that Life isn't different for a black person in Australia and you need to be very cautious as a white person and I would advise against this in preaching to black people what their experience is or isn't or what it ought to be. There are racists in this country. Uh, I've seen it in action and we need, we need to listen to the voices of minorities and take it very seriously. And so really, I think critical race theory tries to address a real problem but it misdiagnoses it through the over essentialization and the reductionism and some of the things i've spoken about and it prescribes a course of treatment that i think is going to have severe side effects and may actually kill the patient if not checked itself but i just want to leave you with the notion that if you really or this idea if you really are concerned to fight against critical race theory 
then the way to undermine it is to undermine what I would call its plausibility structure, which is the real existence of racism. And so if you want to critique critical race theory, as I have done, and this is why I'm finishing on this note, then you need to actually take racism seriously. Because if you pretend racism is not an issue, and that some people in our country do not have the same experience as white people, then this theory is going to be plausible. People are going to be attracted to this theory, particularly minorities. And it's going to convince some people. And the more people it convinces, the harder it's going to be to undo. And so the way to critique this is to expose its intellectual flaws, which I've attempted to do in this episode, whilst also standing up to racism and affirming that it does exist, that it is a problem, and that whilst we have made a lot of progress, there is still work to be done, and we can all take individual responsibility for that. Well, this podcast went for about 40 minutes longer than I had intended, which is not a good start, but then again, how can you do this topic in five minutes? In any event, I really thank you for joining me in this conversation and for accompanying me, assuming there's anyone who's still listening at this point. Uh, It's a really important topic. I hope I've brought a little bit of illumination and provided some food for thought. If you like what you hear in the podcast, please tell your friends about it. Write to your local PM. Tell your pets. uh, Write to the UN Secretary General. Scream it from the rooftops. Like, subscribe, rate. You know the drill. Every podcaster does this. But in all seriousness... I need help to get the word out if if you like it. If you didn't like it, no problem. Thanks for giving me a go and I'll speak to you next time.